Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart, and I'm very forgiving, but, like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. I began listening to classical music in my 20s. Job hunting as an actor in L.A. meant you'd be in your car three, four hours a day. I drive around listening to the local classical stations, sometimes pulling over to call from my car phone to find out the name of the piece, who composed it, who performed it, and who conducted. While I was learning the difference between Mahler and Mendelssohn, my guest today, Esapekka Salonen, a Finnish French horn player also in his 20s, was making his conducting debut with the Philharmonia Orchestra in London. Today, Salonen is their principal conductor and the new composer in residence at the New York Philharmonic for the next three years. And that's new, because I, I mean, obviously I've been composing for decades and since I started studying music, really, but, but this is the first time I have an official position as a composer, as opposed to being a conductor of some orchestra. And that, for me, this is really fascinating, exciting. For a lot of people, it's fascinating, actually. <laughs> was composition something that was the goal originally, and conducting was accidental, I'm told, correct? That's true. Yeah, I I started studying composition quite early in my teens. We started a group of young composers in Finland. I was born and raised in Helsinki, Finland. We had a group of young composers. Magnus Lindberg was one of them. He was actually the first composer in residence with the New York Philharmonic. Kaya Sariaho, another very well-known composer now. So we started this group together, um, sort of idealistic uh, group of young Turks kind of uh, trying to change the world and you know we thought that new music is good for people um, and therefore we took it out to you know gas stations prisons old people's <laughs> homes and so on and, and it was one of those uh, missions um, 
And it turned out that the, the real conductors at the time in Finland were not interested in our stuff. So we felt that one of us has to conduct something, uh, has to be able to do it. So I was kind of voted um, to become the conductor of the group because I had a lot of performance experience. I, I was a home player, French home player. And I used to uh, sub in, in Helsinki orchestras, in the opera orchestra, radio orchestra and so on. So I knew what it meant to be on stage and play and so on. So I started studying conducting just for this purpose, basically. And, and uh, so it was a fluke. And then I realized that I actually enjoyed it quite a bit and it seemed to be coming naturally to me and so on. Um, what did you enjoy about it? The people. Now when I think about it, I, I wasn't so clear about that before. But now when I have long periods of of composing only, which is very lonely, of course, you know, it, you're, you're alone, uh, essentially, uh, it's very slow. You know, you imagine something and then you kind of uh, translate that dream into a sort of notation and so on. It's a very slow process and, uh, and lonely, as I said. And, it, and the energy is a different kind of energy. It's the sort of marathon runner's energy. You know, the long haul, you have to kind of pace yourself and you have to be very, very patient and so on. Whereas conducting, of course, it, it's a very intense thing socially. I mean, you, you are on stage with hundred other people and in the rehearsals you're trying to focus them, you're, you're trying to present your ideas about the piece in such a way that they not only accept them, but they they would willingly follow you to wherever you want to go and so on. And, and, and I really enjoy that aspect of it. The actual act of conducting, you know, standing there on the box, waving this stick in the air uh, is not very interesting in my opinion. It's, it's just uh, like the tip of the iceberg. But the, And why is that person there? For those who don't understand that history of classical music, there wasn't always someone standing on a podium conducting, correct? That's right. Yeah, I, in the old days, I mean, the very old days, we are talking about Bach and Haydn and Mozart and so on. The, the music was simple enough and it, it behaved in a sort of predictable enough way that the musicians could actually take care of it themselves without somebody giving the beat and, you know, giving instructions as to where it goes and so on. But then it started to become a little more complex uh, with Beethoven. And, you know, Beethoven symphonies are already very difficult to perform without a conductor, unless you are okay with a totally standard middle-of-the-road kind of approach. But if you want to do something, if you want to do something with the music, then there has to be somebody behind a, a concept. And then, of course, you know, we, we move on uh, in history onto the big opera guys, Verdi, Wagner, so on, and then, you know, onto Strauss, Bruckner, Mahler, you know, uh, Stravinsky. That music cannot be played successfully. It's impossible. Yeah, it's impossible from the coordination point of view, but also the way it's composed, because the composer uh, assumes that the interpretation has some kind of flexibility and ideas about the tempo and the pacing and so on. Wagner, for instance, is all about the pacing. So what the conductor does is to handle the flow of time um, over an arch of, I don't know, five hours, six hours, so on, including the breaks, of course. Um, so it 
it's a it's a profession that became um, necessary. Um, and somehow, somewhere during this process, the conductor also became more visible, more of the center of the musical life, the musical musical process, the musical culture than the composer had been. And and of course, if you think of the modern um, recording industry, you know, with the with the LP and especially the CD and now the DVDs and what have you, at, um, the performer seems to be the center of all, almost all attention. And the person who wrote the music, who in my opinion is, is rather a big part of the chain, is actually not, uh, well, recognized, yeah, but not, not treated in the so- same sort of heroic way as, as the conductors are, for instance. I had a really kind of il- illuminating experience in, in LA some years ago. I was, I was, in a, uh, I was at Starbucks, actually, um, queuing for my coffee. And there was a guy in front of me uh, who asked where, whether, whether I was so-and-so. And I said, yes, I, I am. And he introduced himself, and he, he said that he was also a composer. And I said, um, okay, sorry, I, I, I don't recognize your name. I'm sorry, sorry about that. And, and he said, no, nobody does. But I write songs for pop stars. And and he said that told me that he had written a, a couple of songs for Madonna and, and and you know these huge names, and his his name doesn't appear anywhere. And I thought you know this is symptomatic. So it's not only a classical music problem. Right. I mean it, right. it's a problem across the board. There was some guy in London, composer who calculated that if if a composer wants to get up to the minimum wage, annual minimum wage of the UK, uh, he or she needs like 1.7 trillion downloads per year or or hits per year. <laughs> what I want to get back to is you are uh, in London and you're at the Philharmonia, correct? Yes. And you're playing the French horn. And not anymore. Not anymore. I used to. No. What, 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 what were you playing at the moment you were asked to step up and conduct? Isn't that when you were first asked to conduct at the Philharmonia? Yes, I was still playing the horn, yeah. You're playing Those the horn. Days, yeah. And who was the conductor at the time? Michael Tilson Thomas. Tilson Thomas was conducting the Philharmonia then. Yes, he was supposed to do Marley Third Symphony. And, and what happened? I think he injured his elbow, like a tennis elbow, something like that, oh. and had to pull out. And they called everybody on the planet with no success obviously and then they ended up with me uh, who was completely unknown Um, I had an agent who worked with a few artists but his main business was in golf accessory uh, and he operated out of a golf course um, in in a smallish city of of, in Finland where nobody spoke English and so on and so forth so it took a little while for the messages to get through I had had a long night with my pals, composer pals, when the call came in, early in the morning. So it's this guy from the golf course saying that the Philharmonia wants you to conduct Mahler 3. And I told him to disappear in using expressions I will not repeat here. Yes, not on public radio. Yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, he called back a couple of hours later when I was already talkable um, and said, okay, here's the deal. So do you want to do it? And I thought, um, okay, so if it goes well, fine. If it doesn't, at least I can tell this to my grandchildren that I've done it once, or at least tried to. And then I went and did it, and it 
that's how I became a full-time conductor for a while. Your parents were not musicians, correct? No, no. Um, my father was a businessman, and my mom was mostly home. Uh, they loved music, uh, listened to music. They went to concerts um, occasionally, but they didn't practice music in a... In, in but they listened to recorded music. Yes, my father especially, he loved opera, and he loved Italian opera, so I had a lot of Verdi and Puccini playing when I was growing up. And how did that affect you? I have had a very problematic relationship with Italian opera ever since. This is quite normal, I guess. You know, it, when your dad is really into something, when and then you grow up, you kind of decide not to be into the same thing. Um, I think it's a healthy reaction. So that's not just a Finnish thing. It's a uh, no. I think it's a universal thing. It's, it's a global thing. Um, and once he came home, he was very proud. He he had bought a new recording of of La Bohème, uh, and he said it. He told me that he got it really cheaply. Uh, it was a special offer. Um, and it was a Deutsche Oper Berlin version of the La Bohème in German. Um, and I grew up with this recording. And it's funny because when I hear it now in Italian, it sounds all wrong. I can't listen to it in Italian because it, it, it's, it goes in German in my memory. And <laughs> it's funny how we get conditioned in our childhood and it never changes. When you, when you stepped up at the age of 25 to conduct the Mahler Third with the Philharmonia, did you have a sense, like, what did you do that you think, how, how did it go? What do you attribute to that it was so successful? Because everything I read, they talk about you becoming an overnight sensation as a conductor as a result of this performance. While you were doing it, were you saying to yourself, wow, this is really going well? Or you don't think about that? I think the the critical moment is the first minute in in the first rehearsal with the orchestra. I mean, most of my colleagues can actually say the same thing, I'm, I'm sure, that when you meet a new orchestra, especially when you're young uh, and you don't have that routine, how to deal with, uh, with uh, people you don't know, um, that's the moment when you don't know how it's going to go. Um, and with the Philharmonia, I, I felt this connection in a really strange way. I, and it's very hard to explain. It's, some, it's something that happens between people. I mean, even in, in your private life, and you meet somebody and you know from day one or the first second, actually, that this person is going to be a very important influence, positive, constructive influence in my life. And the opposite happens as well. All the flags go up and, and you know that you, you, you have to stay away from this person no matter what. And You're very instinctual that way. Well, we all are. All are. I think it's a, it's a biological thing, you know, that... You know, it has to do with survival and, you know, the forming internal relations with the tribe and, you know, keeping the cohesion of the society and this and that. Um, but so with the Philharmonia, I felt straight away that, wow, these guys seem to not only accept me, but but they seem to follow me and kind of willingly. Um, and I was quite an experience because it, it was the famous Philharmonia Orchestra and the conductor was Ricardo Muti at that time and, and you know it's like a big deal um, and I have had these kinds of experiences later on in life as well and they they it never fails the mechanism I, I felt the same kind of thing in LA 
a year after the Philharmonia concert when I met them for the first time. Um, and I had no idea what to expect. I, it was my first trip to, to the US ever. So it was a culture shock. And, and of course, I start out in LA, which is even more of a shock than anything else would have been. And, and then I can say in, that again. Yeah. And then I step in front of the band and, and, and they're terribly nice, but, 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 more, but more than that, you know, like connecting straight away. And, I, and that for me is the very essential thing about making music. And, and with both orchestras, LA and the Philharmonia, I've sometimes had these very strange experiences, you know, some kind of communication that is beyond, certainly beyond words, but also beyond gestures in a way. And I'm thinking of something. I can I can swear that they do it before I've done it, <laughs> so that they, there's this kind of fine tuning, fine tuned um, th- trust in each other in a way, uh, and it has to be mutual. Otherwise, it doesn't work. So after the um, performance of the Mahler in London, you were 26 years old. When does your first assignment come as a music director of a ensemble? I. St- Started out in Stockholm with the Swedish Radio Orchestra um, soon after this. Um, and was I st- it a job you wanted? It was the best orchestra in Scandinavia at the time and, and still is one of the very best, if not the best. And and, um, and that was perfect for me because I I was in a, in a culture that was familiar to me. I spoke the language and still it was away from home. Um, was staying in the Scandinavian sphere yeah, so a goal? Did you want to stay there for the time it, being? It felt like a very good idea because I I liked the idea of being in a culture where no particular translation was necessary and I understood the reactions of people and they understood reactions of mine or the lack, <laughs> lack, of, lack of reactions. And, um, and it was a very good orchestra and they were terribly nice people and... Um, and the same kind of thing. That there was a very sort of intuitive understanding. People, people have a prejudice, I suppose, myself included, that there's a Scandinavian soul, and that they crave music of a certain type or key. Or do they want? Is that not true? Do they want to hear everything? I'm not sure. There's a Scandinavian soul. Uh, it's it's a, it's a myth in many ways. <laughs> Technically, if we look out from the Finnish perspective and, and try to decide who is who are the ones that are closest to us in you know historically, traditionally, temperamentally, in every way. It's the Swedes. Also Finland was part of Sweden for six hundred years. Um, so there's there's a lot of history. But still there's a fundamental difference in in how we behave in in social life and um, the Swedes are very smooth uh socially smooth uh, uh, skillful people they, they work very well in groups they uh, they're very successful in everything they do you know they, they they are experts at selling their products globally and internationally and so on um, and they are very brilliant in many ways Finns first of all Finns don't speak much I mean talking using more than the absolute minimum amount of words to get your message across is somehow considered being frivolous or, you know, suspect or something like that. And um, Gregarious. Yeah, some kind of, you know, uh, trying to achieve your goal through flattery or whatever. And, 
Um, I realized this. I saw this very clearly when, when um, after some years in LA, I went back to my country house in Finland and, and went out jogging. And I had learned this habit of greeting everybody, like you do in LA. You know, you, you, you're walking on the street and you just greet, greet people. Um, and I was greeting everyone, uh, you know, every villager. Um, and they looked at me like some kind of space aliens. What, what has happened to this guy? He was perfectly normal a few years ago. Now he's been in America and he, right. now he's like this. Right. So what's he's what, neurotic? What is this all about? Salonen is rooted in the United States. Two of his three children were born here. And I'd love to claim Salonen as our very own, but I'd have to get in line. He's an international superstar with seven honorary doctorates from four different countries. Be sure to explore the Here's the Thing archives. You can find my conversation with Alex and Jamie Bernstein, whose father, like Salonen, had a serendipitous debut as a conductor at a major concert hall. So he gets back to Carnegie Hall at, you know, five in the morning and passes out. And then, like an hour and a half later, the phone rings, and it's Bruno Zirato of the New York Philharmonic saying, this is it, kid, you have to go You're on this right, afternoon. And it was on the radio. It was a national broadcast. Take a listen at heresthething.org. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core 
what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In 2003, the Walt Disney Concert Hall, home to the L.A. Philharmonic, opened in downtown Los Angeles. The space is internationally beloved for its design and its acoustics. As a Pekka Salonen, the music director of the orchestra at that time, christened the space when it opened. The project got started in the late 80s already. So I, I was involved, I was a music director designate from, from 89. So I, I started talking with Frank Gehry already then. and um, But they had started the fundraising and the first donation came in in, in 87 already, I believe. So So it really was a... 15-year project um, and then we started developing the idea and, and and it came to a halt a couple of times um, for think, financial reasons financial and, and political like uh, and Geary's conception it was not so much about that but it, it was just things that happened like the riots in in 92 right. in LA and you know somehow Rodney when, King yeah, when when you realize that the society was kind of falling apart and 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 everybody realized that there were these huge tensions and that the kind of peace and and rule of law was just a very sort of thin layer on top of it all. So I think everybody felt that that there are huge problems that need need to be need to be addressed. And at that point to even speak about building a new concert hall in downtown LA felt like the wrong thing to do, right. and and I think it a new police station maybe, but <laughs> yeah, or right. rather some you know more constructive ideas as to how to alleviate the situation, how to make things better, and so on. Um, but then things moved on. Luckily, um, later in the in the nineties, and um, I think the tur- turning point was in. 1996, when the Philharmonic did a month-long residence in Paris, and and lots of people came to hear the, their own orchestra playing in a great concert hall in in Paris, the Châtelet, and and then the, I I think that was the thing that changed the whole thing. That all of a sudden uh, people realized that a musical experience is really a sum of its parts. Uh, and one very important thing is the the space where the orchestra plays, and if it doesn't sound good, there's little hope. What was it like to live so many years in Los Angeles, coming from where you came from, and just culturally? I loved it. I think it's a really great place to live, and um, it takes a little while to get used to it. Yeah. To be honest, I mean, it, it's a lousy place to visit because in in two weeks you are only confused and you don't get it. But it really does grow on you, and and um, and also for me as a as an artist and as a as a person, it was really incredibly helpful 
to be away from the sort of European canon, you know, the sort of arrogant European intellectual canon that, you know... In the music world. And, and of course, when I started out in L.A., I, I had this, some kind of residue from this European thing that, okay, I'm here to to bring some kind of uh, <laughs> culture to... To, to, to elevate spot. you. To, yeah, <laughs> this culture as medicine kind of thing, which is vile. Um, Thank uh, God I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, aren't you lucky? Um, and, um, and it was an interesting process because I was talking about things, you know, the way we used to in, in, in Europe those days, and, you know, with this kind of all kinds of intellectual constructs and, you know, the historic necessity of atonal music and this and that. And people were very nice. They said, oh, yeah, great, interesting. But how does it sound? Uh, or asking these questions that are the obvious questions that everybody should ask, but we, we weren't for some reason asking. So what that sounds great, but um, what does it do to me? How how will I feel? What is the actual effect and impact of what you're doing uh, on me? And and I couldn't quite <laughs> answer to those questions. And and, and this, this started a big um, process um, where I kind of rethought my values, my life, and my artistic output. While you were in Los Angeles? Yeah, while I was there. Um, and Can you and describe it, that process? Um, it's hard to to describe it in words, but, but what happened, composition-wise, was that I'd, I had come to a drought. For a few years, I'd, I hadn't written anything. Um, and I was blaming the conducting schedule I was, I was conducting around the world, and I was learning all that repertoire, you know, all of a sudden I was doing all the Beethoven symphonies and the Brahms and the Bruckner and, and God knows what. So I was, I spent lots of hours uh, in front of the score, buried. Uh, but it, it was not only about the lack of time, it was, it was more like a crisis. I, I didn't know what to write and how to write. Uh, and, and I had this, like a dichotomy, um, that the music I loved playing and performing uh, was not like the music I wrote. Um, I loved playing the the big lush stuff by you know Richard Strauss and Mahler and Bruckner and Stravinsky and Sibelius and all that. I loved that resonant sound of a symphony orchestra and the the fact that when hundred people play full throttle, uh, it's more thrilling than almost anything else in the world to witness that energy coming at you. It's more thrilling than anything in the world. Not Pretty, almost anything else. Anything. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Thank you. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Thank you. Um, and um, the music I was writing at the time was not like that. It was because I was still in the sort of European modernist um, kind of box, uh, straight jacket rather, uh, where so many things were forbidden. And it sounds utterly ridiculous. I'm, I'm here telling you what was forbidden because it, there was no particular uh, body that was doing the forbidding, but, but it was just like, it was considered to be wrong to write a melody. It was considered to be wrong to, to use pulse. Uh, it was considered to be absolutely wrong to do something that sounds like a modulation. 
i.e. moving from one key to another. And you didn't have anything like that? No. So finally, I get to a point in L.A. with the sort of newly found freedom. I think that's the thing about Southern California, the, the freedom, the sort of um, openness of the culture, the curiosity. You know, um, Many colleagues I've been talking to, composers and other artists, um, people like Peter Sellers and Bill Viola, John Adams, they all say the same thing, that coming to Southern, Southern California, or California, rather, um, was essential uh, for them to become the, the artist they wanted to be or had, had the potential to be. When the time comes to create the schedule for a given season, what factors go into that beyond availability of artists or whatever? Is it all you? Do you sit down and people just take dictation and you say, I want to play this and this and this and this? Or, or, or are there board influences? It's a, it, it's a very complex process, actually, because it, I think it would be irresponsible, irresponsible uh, for the music director to dictate every program according to his or her tastes. Uh, because at, at the end of the day, this is a public institution. We are serving the public and 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 a symphony orchestra has to be and is a constructive uh, force in the community and and therefore it it has to cater to more than one taste and and it has to find the balance between leading and satisfying the needs but also you you, you kind of gauge the reactions after every concert and mm -hmm. you know I, I did in my years in LA, I, I did about thousand concerts with them. So, so I I learned to read the reaction quite well, I think. Um, and and I I think that towards the end, especially the the audience was quite proud of the fact that they are the cool audience. You know, they 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 can take all this stuff. You know, they they are comfortable with new music. They are comfortable with less known works. But also they love their Tchaikovsky, they love their, you know, Verdi Requiem, and, the, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. When seats open up inside the ensemble itself, describe that process of how those seats are filled. Is it a committee, typically, of, of, of the orchestra itself? Well, Do you every, have an input into that? Every orchestra has a slightly different process. What was it like in Los Angeles? Um, but first of all, they announced the, the opening in, in publications, you know, the... Um, musical um, publications and, and on the internet and so on, and they get applications. And these days, uh, a major U.S. orchestra gets at least 150 applications for one position. If the positions are like uh, principal player or something like that, they might get 300 or 500, insane numbers in any case. Right. So there's, a, there's an auditions committee that listens to the candidates some orchestras screen them based on the CVs um, and just invite a smaller number of people to play. Some orchestras listen to everybody. But in any any event, the committee, elected committee, sits there uh, and listens to everybody who play behind the screen so there are no uh, extra musical issues at play. Um, and then for the final round, usually the music director joins them for the final round, um, they then vote and recommend uh, a number of players, um, mostly like five or six, for the music director to choose from. Um, and the music director does indeed choose. 
Yes, but but you know, it, this is also something where uh, I think it makes a lot of sense to trust the instincts of the players, the colleagues, because they are the ones who actually sit next to this. But one. if they hand you this five book. finalists, how do you know which one they favor? Well, it's they've there, told you. There's, there's a discussion. Uh, there's a discussion, and and then quite often, I used to invite a couple of people to play with the Oxford for X number of weeks to see how they fit in. Sure. And sometimes, you know, people are too individual or people are just not tuned into uh, collaborating and, and, and so on. So, And this, there's no way to discover this un, until you, you've seen it. During the time you were in Los Angeles, how, uh, if at all, was there any frequency in which people tried to co-opt you, especially with your success as a composer, into creating film score? I had a couple of discussions with a couple of people, directors, but but it never materialized. And and I know. Were you open to the idea? Yes, yes. I I I find it fascinating, especially when I hear a great film score by a great film composer. It it really is. Uh, it's an art form. It really is an art form. But then when I talk to my friends in the film business, and they tell me about the sh- schedules, you know, uh, like I think James Newton Howard took over the King Kong project uh, uh, four weeks before the film was supposed to be finished and he wrote more than two hours of music in in three and a half weeks and I said well did you sleep he said no yeah uh, it's not ideal and, and that's a skill I mean uh, to, to be able to do that and and deliver like highest quality film music it's it's a skill and I'm not not sure I have it many conductors many people in the classical repertoire some of them a bit older now have tried their hand to varying degrees as composers and had some success. Some pieces they've done are, are uh, uh, performed and are admired. Why do you think some of your colleagues don't get the traction with their work that you have had? Well, lots of uh, reasons, I, I believe. First of all, our era uh, is that of... Um, specialists you know everything is getting more and more specific everyone uh, gets a smaller and smaller segment of of the the full process and um and if somebody's trying to do more than one thing that is immediately suspicious somehow um you know if you think of um say chocolate when i was a kid i i went to a supermarket and bought a chocolate bar now I would go to a, a you know, specialist chocolatier. <laughs> a cho- I was going to say yeah. a chocolatier, and, and I would <laughs> choose between beans from Guatemala yes. or beans from and the jalapeno from chocolate. And there would be like sixty-four uh, percent beans as opposed to sugar or whatever, and and it, everything is just becoming more and more and more specific. Yes. Um, so I think the same process happens in in culture as well. The idea of covering a bigger segment of the entire process is is not popular um, for some reason. I don't know why. Um, this happens uh, with um, builders, you know, like people in construction work, um, you know, people specialize in, in smaller and smaller parts of the building process. And then you have to have like eight specialists to do your house instead of having one or two guys in the past who would do everything. Um, and, and and I think it has to do with that. The other uh, 
thing is more sort of uh, mundane. I think it, you know, in order to be a composer, you have to compose, i.e., you have to set aside the time. And in my case, I made the decision that I, I conduct only six months a year, or less, uh, and the rest is for composing. It's something you worked at. You yeah, work I mean, this it. needs planning, you know, and yeah. and of course, an con- inspiration. And couldn't and, and you have to have management. You have have to have people who support you in this. Um, and of course, you know, to be totally. Do you need isolation? Yeah, you need to be in one place, and and um, and also, you know, conducting is is more lucrative from uh, certainly from the financial <laughs> point of view. But but also, you know, you get this service. You fly first class, and you you stay in nice hotels. You're a star. So, you're a star, and, and people clap when you come in. I mean... They clap when you come in. <laughs> well, well, by definition, they clap. And mostly they clap after the show also. So it's, so it's okay. Composer is just sitting there, you know, uh, and yeah. long days and quite often nothing happens. It's a happens. different life. And, yeah, it's a different life. I, I had an experience many years ago. I was in Paris... Invited to, they did a, the French radio did a festival of young, then young, uh, European composers' work. And they played a piece of mine, and and uh, I went to hear the concert. I couldn't go to the rehearsals. And and they had booked a, I guess, a perfectly fine little hotel close to the, the radio, French radio. And I'm checking in with, with my wife, and and I get really sort of annoyed. I said, look at this piece of, you know what, how can they expect anybody anybody to stay in a place like this? And she looks at me and says, shut up. You are here as a composer. <laughs> this is composer's <laughs> life. You are not here as a conductor. So so just suck it up. Was, was, there, was there a piece you wrote that, that came out of you more spontaneously, one that just came flowing out of you? It's always different. It's always different. It, it, it's just slow. This is my experience. It and you cannot make make it go faster. It just takes the time it needs. And then sometimes a piece is, comes out pretty much as it should. And it sounds as it should in the first rehearsal, and then I change maybe a couple little dynamics or something, but I, that's it. And then with some other pieces, they are not born right somehow. And, and I take them back and and fix and modify and change things and then play it again, still not good. And then in some cases, this process has gone on for a couple of years. In some cases, I've been able to fix it and, you know, get to a result that I wanted to have in the first place. And in some cases, I just gave up. I thought, okay, this is it. What's and all, you know, it, it, this is the way it came out and I'll I'll try again. Do you yourself ever get overwhelmed by a piece when you're performing it even now? Do you yourself even find... I mean, I've had other conductors say to me, I tried my best to leave the tears for the audience. But do you find sometimes even you get crushed by the music you're playing? It does happen. It it does happen. Give me an example, if you will. Um, there are two kinds of occasions, I think. There, there's... You know the expectation reward cycle, where you know there are some spots in some works that I find so unbelievable that 
when I'm conducting, I'm not hurrying exactly, but I, I can't wait to get to that spot. And it, it, it does it Such every, as? every time. Well, some modulations, for instance, you know, like uh, in Bruckner 7 in a slow movement when the the big culmination of the adagio where the whole orchestra like falls onto a C major chord and and it's just overwhelming. And, and it, it's an experience which is physical and emotional and everything. It, it's almost sexual because it's... it's Spiritual. Like, yeah, it's it's everything. It, and, and it's very hard not to be very, very moved by this. And it's funny because I've conducted this piece, I don't know, 30, 40 times and over the years and still it does it every time. But then there's a, a different category which is more like it doesn't have to do with the actual piece so much but it's more like the let's call it flow it it's it's those moments and this is not doesn't happen every day or every week even but it, it sometimes i experience this kind of flow state where i feel that i'm one with not only the piece but also with the orchestra and somehow in some way with the audience also that we create this kind of um, ocean or a river and and I'm just like riding on a wave and I'm this sounds terribly new age but it, it, it I can't really describe it very well it, it's I'm receiving and not giving and I'm riding on something which is much 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 more powerful than myself and those are incredible moments and sure. but I I cannot call them you know it's it's there's no way to guarantee that this happens. When it happens, there's nothing like it. Asapekka Salonen, the rare combination of conductor and composer. He said recently that he's finally got the balance right, a 50-50 split. To see Salonen at work, check out the orchestra app he created for the iPad. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. 
like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.